You're listening to Tango Uncorked. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show today. It is Tango Uncorked with Adam Hoopengardner, and that is me. And it is Thursday. I have officially established that I will not have an official release date. There's just too much stuff happening. The interviews that I line up, they happen at random times and random days and random moments. And trying to coordinate all that to, to, to get, get come out on a Tuesday doesn't always work. So let's just just subscribe. And then when this show is up, it will automatically upload to your device. And then you will just have it ready. It'll be there. It'll be in your phone, waiting, just like that. It's amazing. And today on the show, my guest subscribed to the show live, on air, so you can witness how it happens. You push a button, and you subscribe. Who is my guest today? Most of you, unless he has asked you to specifically listen to this show, uh, most of you probably don't know him but rest assured you'll want to I, I I guarantee it he's a very interesting person um, we did meet briefly in tango he was a Robin Thomas disciple many years ago and just as I was and um, he's also a Cleveland disciple just as I was or am so uh, You'll hear the whole story in the interview or the chat or whatever we want to call it. Um, but his name is Jason Koo, and he's a very fascinating guy. He's got a vast uh, amount of interests, so there's always something to, dis- to discuss with him when we hang out. We are sports buddies, I will say. However, um, we did drive home twice, actually, but once we drove home, back in 2017 to Cleveland, Ohio, and as you can imagine, that's a long drive, and uh, went pretty well, like nice conversations throughout, we stopped at uh, McDonald's and had a guilty pleasure, and um, yeah, it was a nice drive, he got to meet my brother, I met his family, went to Brazil for his wedding, met his lovely wife Anna, who uh, I had met before they were, she was his lovely wife, anyway, um, She's cool, she's an artist, he's a poet, and he's on the show today. A couple of things to announce. Last night was Tango Cafe. It uh, was a great evening, as usual. And um, tonight is Ruben's 93rd birthday. We are going to celebrate at La Nacional. This weekend is Malaleche. We have Andres Bravo and Sarita Appel performing. They just returned from Buenos Aires. Um, what else? Next week, Horacio Godoy and Cecilia Barrow will finally be arriving in New York City and teaching workshops, and uh, they're pretty much full, but we're trying to squeeze a couple more people in. I know a lot of people like to wait till the last minute. Well, that's normal. What else? Uh, that's about it. It's a long show today. I know for some of you, it's like, oh my God, why is it so long? Well, it's hard to get into the depth of somebody in a short time span and uh hey you know what you don't have to listen to it all at once it's a podcast people you can stop it you can restart it you can pause it things like that actually work 
Uh, you can do it at the gym. In fact, if you're looking for a reason to go to the gym, subscribe to podcast. Then you'll have a reason. Um, subway rides, car rides, long walks in the park. Do you like the beach? Try it on the beach. Um, you can use, you can use my backyard. I, I'll invite you. You can come to my backyard and sit on the hammock and listen to the podcast. How's that? All right. Here we are with Jason Koo, and uh, I wanted to say I don't have anybody lined up for my next show, so I may not be out with the show next week. We have Horacio here. It's going to be a very busy weekend and week prepping for that. Um, but as I said before, subscribe, and then when the show comes out, it'll just be gifted to you in your phone for free. All right. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy the show. Jason Koo, my sports friend. You're famous in the tango community as being known as my sports friend. Oh, Not my, my Asian friend. friend. Yeah. My sports friend. <laughs> you probably have a lot of Asian tango friends. That was funny yeah. on Saturday when it came up like you thought I was going to refer to you. Remember we were talking with Tony and Tiffany? And oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, we actually, I refer to you as, and you guys all thought I was going to say my Asian friend. <laughs> I was like, no, yeah. my sports friend, you yeah. fucking asshole. My sports friend. <laughs> so... I have flowers here because I lost Sharon's favorite umbrella. Oh, wow. And That uh, seems like a pretty big compensation for just a favorite umbrella. Thank you. Hopefully she'll listen to this. <laughs> um, no, Why because, was it her favorite umbrella? Because it's very special. She's had it for a long... She's sentimental about very few things, but those yeah. things that she is, and I can appreciate that. It was a really nice umbrella. I guess if you've had an umbrella for a long time, which is hard to do because they're so easy to lose, right? Well, this one was really cool. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Why was it so cool? Uh, it was very lightweight. It was a wooden handle, uh-huh. kind of a cane thing. Uh, it was a uh, polka dot blue with uh, orange and like reddish polka dots. I feel like I might have seen this. You probably saw it. Point. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. uh, I was changing trains. Jesus. I thought you were gonna say like you lost your favorite like necklace or something that her like dead grandmother gave her or something. <laughs> I'd have to get more than just flowers for that. Interestingly, we've lost two of our. We have like a big umbrella, and we and then we had these two portable, like you know, smaller umbrellas that we could take in a carry-on bag or something. And somehow we lost both of them. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure that's really deeply interesting to all your listeners. Yeah, all three of them. <laughs> I have like a few diehard followers, and then really, I, yeah. How many people subscribe to this podcast? Um, in fact, I don't subscribe. I need to subscribe. I subscribe to fucking everything. <laughs> You know, like people tell me about podcasts, I just like whip out my phone. I'm like, I'm gonna subscribe to that, and like I don't listen to half of them. But I just subscribe to Al Franken's podcast and Alan like, Alda's podcast. Wasn't Al Franken like victimized or victimized or outed? He victimized <laughs> by the somebody, Me Too but then it was like because that was like pretty like weird what happened. I feel like the yeah, I think he sort of got railroaded in that one. Yeah. I think. I mean, I'm not. They, like, I'm not, I'm not justifying him, right? his behavior. Like he made a pretty crude joke on yeah. her behalf. When Wasn't she there was like asleep. an old photo or something? He did a photo yeah. and his, this woman was sleeping and he was pretending to right, right. grab her I breast. Yeah. But there was a recent article in the New Yorker about it, and uh, I don't know. I think I don't think what he did was you know great yeah, or anything. Not. But I think that he kind of got. Screwed in a in yeah. a moment and uh, yeah now, gonna, now man people that listen to this yeah now like, they're all gonna be they're like what gonna the be fuck? Like, fuck Adam dude, you're a dick. <laughs> this podcast is about umbrellas and 
supporting the men who are outed by the Me Too movement. <laughs> who are these guys? <laughs> well, let's. Uh, hey, the good thing about a podcast is you don't have to listen to it. <laughs> That's true. You can just shut it off and. But I try to stay as neutral as possible comment. when I'm on doing this. Although I, I did get a, um, I did say I said something that I didn't think was necessarily <laughs> upsetting to somebody. But he wow. he sent me a message saying that like maybe I might have embarrassed him. But oh, I it was about the person. But I didn't actually say like it's only something he would know. Oh, I see. Anyway, yeah, I have to be careful. What is this podcast called again? <laughs> called tango uncorked oh that's right subscribe <laughs> yeah yeah i should do that right now <laughs> while you're on it I'll, I'll give you five stars that's cool this is so, um, live while we're broadcasting our story we have an interesting history because you're we met because the Cavs won the two we met because lebron james came back to cleveland ohio well we met a long time before that though well yeah like but we, we didn't really have met. any reason to hang out yeah well we had like met through uh I don't even know if we met through Robin. We probably we met at his old uh, practicum. practicum. Yeah. That was on what was that on Tuesday nights? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And. Um, but then we didn't. We didn't. Really we probably like didn't even meet. like each other. Yeah, we didn't really like <laughs> meet. We just like saw each other. Yeah. We certainly never really talked. We didn't know we were from Cleveland. No. I didn't know that at all. And then, the it was after we won the title, right? Because you watched the title. You watched that on your own, right? New Orleans. Yeah, I was in New Orleans. And then I think I was watching the tribe that fall. And then you sent me some message. On no, Facebook. what happened was after we won, I saw you posting on Facebook all this uh, Cavs shit, and I was like, "Why is this Tango dude so into?" Th- I mean, obviously, I figured you were from Cleveland at that point. Mm-hmm. So then I reached out and said, "You know, here we go. like, <laughs> holy shit, I can't believe we won a fucking championship." Yeah. And then the rest is history. Yeah, good times. And then mm-hmm. we spent about a thousand dollars at Brother Jimmy's. <laughs> It was great, but the Indians cost us a lot so of money. Here. I lost my bag on a subway, this is game oh, seven, yeah. with my computer in it. Well, and then you had to miss the game seven yeah, had to work because you were doing the your Tango Wednesday Cafe. Night Malanga. Mm-hmm. This is how committed this man is to Tango. Yeah, He missed, I mean, he missed us losing, but he also missed one of the greatest home runs. I was watching it through Series. my friend Tej's phone. Oh, really? Yeah. You could get it on your phone? Yeah. The MLB he was app? streaming it somehow. Oh, he was just streaming illegally or something. No, yeah. I don't. Well, maybe, but I mean, I don't know. If you can stream illegally on your phone, but he had some kind of. You something. can't watch those like the postseason games that are on like national television. Well, I watched it most. <laughs> somehow you saw. Somehow it. he did that. He yeah. can tell me about it. Yeah. Um, so you run a Brooklyn Yop. Is that what it's officially called? The Yop. <laughs> the organization is called Brooklyn Poets, my friend. <laughs> Brooklyn po- well, that's why I'm here. Yeah. I don't actually listen otherwise. Yeah, yeah. No, this I run a nonprofit. The podcast causes me to have to listen to people. <laughs> the nonprofit is called Brooklyn Poets. Uh, we do have a monthly event called the Brooklyn Poets Yop, which you've been to many times. It's very close to your home. Mm-hmm. It's a monthly poetry workshop and open mic. Very popular events. Almost as popular as Malanga. Doesn't make quite as much money. <laughs> we well, get, we charge on a good night. We, we get five. like maybe like ninety people on a good night. That's I think on a good night, good for you, a poetry. Thing. Yeah, then a good night. What do you get? Like four hundred? Oh no, no, not on Wednesday. Oh really? Like maybe on a good night, a hundred. Oh, but your Saturday in Malanga. Gets Saturday like, we could top off at like two to two fifty. Yeah. If we have like a special guest, then we'll get a little more. And you charge what, like fifteen dollars? For Saturday, it's eighteen and twenty, and for oh. Wednesday, it's twelve and fourteen. So if you charge yeah. a little more, you make some money. We could. We when we started it, we we just charged five dollars, which was really cheap. Uh, it it's been growing. Like we, I think our first one it was actually pretty good. Now they look back, but it was really small. I think we got like maybe 
fucked. I think there was like nine people for the workshop, <laughs> but then for the open mic, there was like twenty-five to thirty. So you do a work? No, you don't always do a workshop beforehand, right? But you try yeah, to. no, we always do a workshop. Oh, you always do. But it's great. So that was in two thousand thirteen when we started it. Broken Post started two thousand twelve, and then probably around like two thousand fourteen or fifteen, it really started to grow. And now it's like there's always at least sixty people there. I mean, you get people coming from New Jersey and yeah. all over the place. Arthur Russell, Arthur, yeah, yeah he always him. drives in from from New Jersey, and we have people coming from the Bronx. I think some people come from Staten Island sometimes. It's crazy. Sometimes we'll have groups like from college or high school. Like they'll buy tickets in advance. And a teacher will bring her students. That's super cool. But yeah, so then we started charging $10 if you wanted to take the workshop. Because it seems like really cheap yeah, just to pay $5 to take it. Because it's like... Oh, well, yeah, you have to have some value. Like Yeah. I mean, I realized after value. a while that it's... Like, it's not a typical workshop, of course, where you have like 10 people sitting around a table or something discussing a poem. It's like... We call it a workshop. It's more like a... It's more like a dancing workshop where the teacher like teaches you something and you learn it in like a you know a limited time frame. So you you sit down. I mean, you've done it. Like yeah, it's I did like one, a yeah. generative writing class for like basically it's like about forty five to fifty minutes. And I was realizing after a while that that's probably the largest regular public writing class in the city, right? Like where you can just like drop in and take this writing class with a really good teacher. And there's always a different teacher every month. Usually, someone that teaches for our uh, five week workshops. And you don't need any experience. Like, I don't no. have any experience. I mean, you I know just, how to write yeah. in English, but I don't yeah. have any writing experience. You can just come in, pay $10, take a great class, and then you stay for the open mic. The open mic is included in that. If you just want to do the open mic, it's $5, which yeah. is still really cheap. So that's uh, 8 o'clock. It's always at 7 Starts at 8. Seven. Yeah. It's the workshop. Workshop's at 7. Local 61 in Carroll Gardens. 61 local. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so bad. Although people do make that mistake a lot. I walk by it like once a week. Yeah. I go to Trader Joe's now all the time. So Local 61 makes it sound like a union place or something. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Local 61 on Bergen. 61 local on Bergen. Yeah, 61 Bergen Mon Street. First Monday, Great second bar. Monday. Second Monday of every month. Second Monday. See, if I say things incorrectly, that means my guest has to repeat them, which means people hear it more. That's my That's strategy. True. Yeah, no, it's a good strategy. It's like putting a line, like Basquiat used to put a line through words he, yeah. he wanted to emphasize. Yeah, he said people like look closer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm lying. I don't do it intentionally, but it, it's working. Um, yeah, so seven to eight, and then the, and then what's cool is like after the the open mic, you guys get on stairs and like commiserate and drink a beer and chat yeah. with each other and watch the Super Bowl and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's good. Although people don't hang out as much as they used to, I think because here's a uh, public service message to uh, public service announcement. Mm -hmm. PSA to uh, 61 Local to keep your kitchen open longer. <laughs> mm. They started closing their kitchen earlier because I used to be able to eat after the event right, right, right. They don't at like 10, and now it's not open anymore. And I noticed that, guess what? People take off now. <laughs> yeah, because they've been sitting there since 7. They're hungry. Yeah, I don't understand why they closed the kitchen. So they, they lost a lot of their business that they would make after. I mean, they love us because we bring in this big crowd Is that why you went night. across the street recently? Yeah, because they, clo the yeah, they closed yeah. the kitchen. Huh, that makes sense. It's really weird. They used to keep it open until like 11. And it's not like they have a full-service kitchen. Right. I think it was just like a hot plate they have back there. Oh, it's like avocado toast, deviled yeah. eggs, and little things like that. I mean, they make great food. They, have, they would have like a chicken thing and like a, a chili, which was great. A bunch of stuff that's really good. And then they just stopped. Did anyway. you start the Yop? Yeah. I started the whole Brooklyn Poets thing. No shit. Didn't you know this shit? Oh, that's why I'm having you here, man. I don't know anything. We yeah. sit around and watch baseball together. I'm the we founder of Brooklyn much. Poets, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm sitting here with the founder of Brooklyn Poets. Wow. Yeah, it's like, I'm you got to say something about I'm me in really like the little now. blurb of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I founded Brooklyn Poets in 2012. Uh, May 31st, Walt Whitman's birthday, which we recently celebrated the bicentennial of. Uh -huh. 2019, he was born May 31st, 1819. 
Uh, and then we started the YOP uh, April of the next year during National Poetry Month. And that became like our, our hub event, like our most popular event. We started the podcast for, I think, in... It was either 2015 or 16. I can't remember. Oh, so you already, yeah. Now I remember. Yeah. You do have a podcast. You record yeah. all of the spoken open mics, words, the open yeah. mics, and you put them up. People vote. Yeah, for poem of the month. Mm-hmm. It's called the Yopcast. Very witty name. The Yopcast. <laughs> cool. Don't listen to the very early ones. Not that anyone I think would go back because the early ones have poor sound recording. Because uh, I went to this. I went to freaking Mike's audio. Mike's hookup. Mikey's hookup. I think it's called in Williamsburg. Just supposedly, supposedly like an amazing audio place. I was like, so how, what would be the best way to record a live podcast? And the guys were just like, well, if it's like a live event, it's just not going to sound that good. I mean, you can hear. He, they gave me this device, like you could like plug this in from your PA system, your computer, and it was shitty. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're telling me that they have they ever been to a fucking concert? That's a live event. I what know, exactly. When I look back and I was like, what was this horse shit the guy was telling me? And he sold me this, I mean, it wasn't expensive, so maybe he could have sold me something more expensive, but it was just like this really useless sort of device that didn't do anything. And what he should have told me is just get like a Zoom recorder or something. Oh yeah, those are, I was thinking yeah. those are expensive. A little price, that was a little out it's of my It's not even that much. Well, <laughs> I think it was like a hundred bucks maybe. And then I, now I plug that straight in from the the PA system we have, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, you know. But the early ones are like well, the Zoom that terrible, I needed was like multi mic'd, and now those get up yeah. to being like three or four hundred. Yeah, like Tony's got like a professional one. I have like the 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 one that's like plastic, but it's still really good. Yeah, and I think it costs maybe like eighty bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's now it's great. Uh, the sound recording's great. But that yeah, it's a great open mic. We get great people every month i'm always blown away by it because I mean, truthfully when i started it i was a little worried about the open mic because i've been to a lot of bad open mics i've never know. been i don't well so i worked at a coffee shop back in lakewood and you know it, considering it's lakewood they had an open mic i think it was on tuesday once a month and yeah, uh that was probably spotty huh it was uh <laughs> i did you know i i've told you this i think when we drove back to cleveland once uh we were talking i was telling you about, like i don't really understand poetry and blah 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 but i do know when i when it's bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's like palpable when it's bad because you're just like oh man it's yeah. like a 13 year old well they were probably were you know what thinking back though those people probably were like 13 when they wrote those poems maybe yeah you know? was that also it was probably like not just poetry right it was probably like there was like uh, comedians, music. no uh, well i no? wish no there was music there was definitely yeah, like yeah. uh the dude with guitar. His guitar yeah <laughs> Yeah, there's always that guy. So that's what I, I was like to. I was trying to like, I guess, quality control the mic. So I decided first it would be poets only, so we wouldn't have that guy <laughs> coming. And then also, I thought that's where I came up with the idea of the workshop first, because I thought that would just. Mm, yeah. I didn't know why exactly, but I thought that would sort of instill the sort of like craft focus. So, like, it wouldn't just be, like, spoken word people coming in. And, it's not, you know, I have no problems with spoken word poets, but, like, a lot of times when you get only that crowd, it's, like, very me-centered. And I wanted to make sure we would also have, like, poets who are interested in writing for the page, right? Hmm. So, like, when you hear the open mic now, it's sort of a mix between people who, who pretty much just read the poem. And they read it well. It's not like they read it in a boring way. And then we'll have more performative people. Sometimes people have it memorized and things like that. But it's a mix, right? So that's really good. Because like, one of the things we try to do with Broken Poets is like really break boundaries between these poetry communities, which is still pretty segregated. It's less so today, but it used to be like either you were an academic poet that wrote for the page and taught in university hmm. and got an MFA, or you were like a, a spoken word poet who like performed at slams and like competed or something. And now we're seeing like uh, a lot of crossover. So like if the communities are much more integrated. 
but it's still pretty separated. Like a lot of people that teach for us, like that teach our five-week workshops and they teach the YOP, very few of them have ever come to the YOP <laughs> on their own. I mean, a few have, but it's pretty rare. Like they wouldn't just go to an open mic to like perform their poems. Like the, most poets I know don't do that. Like and I myself don't do that. It's like we get invited to read, usually we get paid and we go do that reading. Um, but whereas like the people that come for our event, like they don't, they're not in that world. Like they don't usually get invited to do reading. I mean, some of them have now started to get invited to do stuff, but it's because they've started to publish their poems, mm -hmm. right? So it's still very like segregated, the more academic oriented poetry community and then like the, I guess the public. So you started this community. specifically to get more people a voice basically yeah i mean i mean honestly when i started it it was it was um it was more just pragmatically uh urgent because i wasn't sure i was going to have a job in the fall so i was teaching at lehman college for two years as on this like temporary full-time position and that i knew was ending uh in the spring of, I think that was 2012. Like I thought I was going to get this other job that they ha they had an offering for, but then they just gave it to somebody else. Kind of got screwed by Lehman. Uh, and so I went from adjuncting to this temporary full-time position. And then like, they didn't even get, they gave me like one adjunct class for the fall. So I was like, shit. <laughs> so, but while I was doing this job at Lehman, I started to think about like, well, why couldn't I just teach workshops in my own home? Kind of Cause I was like in the dance community. Right. So I was still taking, I was still going pretty hard in the tango world back then. And I was just thinking about it. I was like, you know, all these dance teachers, they teach, they don't teach in a university. They just like teach in a dance studio or, and they teach privates too. And like, and they make a living. I was like, why can't I just like teach poetry students that way? You know? And I just feel, felt like I could like, you know, I mean, you know, I think like most poets think they're more famous than they are. So I thought like, you know, I know all these students already in New York city. Like, I feel like I could get enough students to take these workshops and I'll just offer them in my own house. Because there was this, there was a model for this in this organization called Sacred Street Writers Workshop, which is more so for like prose writers. But Julia Fierro, the founder of this, she just started it with like a Craigslist ad, I think in the in the aughts. Hmm. And originally, I think she had like eight people sitting in her kitchen, right? And now it's just like this, it's grown into like this really successful business where she has many different teachers <laughs> teaching in like multiple boroughs. But that model, I was like, that's a great idea. I was like, so I don't like, let me, let me try that. So I started thinking about like how I could teach my own workshops. And then, uh, and then of course, like I was like, what am I going to call this? Uh, and first I was like, Brooklyn Poetry Workshop, Brooklyn Poetry, all those Brooklyn Poetry Society, those names kind of sound kind of lame. And here's where sports is important, ladies and gentlemen, because then like I suddenly had the idea like, well, what if I just called it like, what if I shortened it just like Brooklyn Poets? Because I was like, that sounds like something that sounds really cool. And I immediately started having all these ideas like I could immediately imagine like the T-shirts that we now have where you have this sort of like kind of like a so the name, the name inspired more ideas yeah like i because i could see the image of like a brooklyn t-shirt which is sort of so iconic with like poets where like the dodgers would be right in like the little script line underneath and then i could have like poets famous brooklyn poets who are dead now like i could have their names on the back and i could immediately see people being into that and buying the shirts in fact that was like the first thing that really made us money like before we really did anything before we had the yup before we even really had many workshops, like we had, I think I had like three, we started selling these t-shirts at the Brooklyn Book Festival in September 2012, and they were just like selling like hotcakes. 
And that's when I realized, like, I have something here, right? People were, like, really into that. And they didn't even know what Book and Poets was. Like, I didn't even really know what it was yet. But people were buying the shirts. And they thought, like, we had been around for a long time. Because Mm -hmm. my designer, my friend Trent uh, Thibodeau, who designed my first couple of books, he he designed the the logo for it. Like, I had this idea to, like, let's do something kind of like the the font that Whitman used. So if you look at the first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855, it just says Leaves of Grass. It doesn't have his name. It's got his like uh, picture on the, the frontispiece, the famous image of him looking like really swagged out. With the uh, open collar. Yeah, and the yeah. hat, the yeah. cocked hat. But then on the, like the bottom of his title page, it just says Brooklyn, New York. And it just looks super badass. So I was like, what if we kind of like stylize... Uh, I mean, we couldn't use that exact font, of course, but like, let's style as a font that kind of looks like that. And then we'll take his image and put it above that. And we'll say it's since 1855, because like my idea is like Brooklyn poets really were founded with Whitman. Yeah. It kind of was started with like that poem in 1855 because that was published in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and it just seemed like, so anyway, I just started having all these ideas just from the name. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think because it was sort of like a good turn of fate when I looked for URLs and BrooklynPoets.com was taken already. And I don't know who took this. They still haven't done anything with it. I keep huh. expecting this person to do something. Whoever took that URL, thanks. Uh, but that pushed me to look for other URLs. So like BrooklynPoets.org was free, was available. So I was like, well, that's usually a nonprofit URL, but this kind of seems like a nonprofit. It sounds like it's like a community organization. So I, I bought that URL, and everything started kind of coming together. And then what happened is I got this job where I teach now at Quinnipiac pretty late in the spring. Usually, like, you'll get uh, full-time jobs in, like, the winter, like, in January, February. But this came out. I got it in April, so I no longer needed to, like, just teach these workshops. And it's good because... Were you teaching workshops? Did you actually eventually Well, I eventually did it, yeah. But what I realized is it's actually... <laughs> Believe it or not, it's really hard to get students, yeah, no right? Shit, like you, you've been building your business over many years. 13 like, years. Yeah. yeah, you have to actually establish your brand. Mm-hmm. Like, p- people won't even come take your workshops for free <laughs> if they don't think they're gonna be good, right? So, like, uh, my idea is like what I was gonna charge. Like, I was like, I'll charge like six hundred and fifty dollars for like a five week workshop. Now I realize that's insane. I mean, you could do that if you were, like, a Nobel Prize-winning poet or something. But, like, in the beginning, like, no one had heard of me. No one had heard of Brooklyn Poets. And like, But I taught, like, just a couple classes in the summer. Uh, and I had found these, like, young students I knew through this Stuyvesant High School because I had, I had been there a couple times. And then I had a former student from Lehman College who was a, a retired woman who had some friends that were interested in taking a class. So she almost, like... Half, half organized that with me, that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, in the beginning, it was just like I taught two summer workshops. And it's a good thing I got this other job because there's no way I could have made a living off that. Yeah. And then in the fall, I think that's when I hired Dorothy Olasky to teach uh, the first workshop that wasn't taught by me. And even her class, and she was pretty well known at the time, and now she's much more famous. Uh, I think she had five students, right? Uh, and then in the next spring, I think we offered two more by Melissa Broder, who's now like, almost kind of uber famous. Now she lives in LA and is publishing fiction and nonfiction as well. And John Maria taught another workshop, but it was really incremental in the beginning. And then when we started doing the YAWP, uh, we started, I realized that was the event that was like drawing people to us because people were discovering us through that event. And that allows people to network a lot, which is really, yeah. Cool. like exactly. I, I was just trying to imagine because Tango has 
a place everybody goes every night or multiple where they all come mm-hmm. together and like as a teacher or a right. DJ, yeah. you can network there. Right. But as a it's poet, true. I'm imagining most poets are at home or in yeah. a coffee shop working out ideas alone, <laughs> yeah. writing things on a page and then That's true. And then they're what are they gonna do? Where are they gonna go with it? like I'm curious how yeah. how hard is it to get published? Huh. How hard is it to network? Um, I mean, you have this open mic, so that's really helped facilitate things. I learned about, like I went, I'm not, I'm, I went just to observe and experience something different. And, um, I heard like some, like that woman, there's a couple people's names I can't remember because I wasn't like writing their names down, but like they read often. And I really like when they come up, I get excited because they're like really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, Arthur's good. I remember yeah. his name because he's kind of louder and everything. But <laughs> yeah. um, I know he was at the Whitman thing we went to. So, yeah, but, he's um, really good. Uh, Julie's great. Yeah. Is her Julie Hart? Julie Hart. She's yeah. awesome. Super I mean, funny. I like... You I can... like the original people. Yeah? Yeah. No, well, I Julie like Hart's her. like one of the original people. Arthur, I think, came maybe like a year later. Yeah. Year but, like, later. but no, so you're providing this thing. But um, back to my question, like how... How was how does one do you do you send articles or not articles do you send poetry into different yeah. periodicals and things like that? It's hard. It's a really good question. Uh, and actually, when you were talking, it was it was occurring to me. I guess how important an event like the not to like sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but, but it is important though. But yeah, I'm realizing that what you're saying is true about the tango world. Like usually, tango dancers will go out. I remember when I was dancing a lot. Like you would go out. There's like kind of like one main place every night it seemed like that a lot of people would go to like either a Malanga or a practica uh so you would usually see a lot of the same people there right and that's where like teachers and students sort of maybe not necessarily integrate but like you would meet other teachers and you at least see people dancing right mm-hmm. so you'd get familiar with the community and that you could speak of a, even though there i know there's problems and tensions in the tango community as there are in any like you would have a sense of like a community that right. existed yeah, yeah. in the city and in the poetry world um, I would say it's a lot more segregated, not so much in terms, I mean, it is segregated in terms of like race and class and things like that, but it's more segregated and also segregated between like the academic world, as I was talking about earlier in the more public world, or you could say academic and spoken word, I guess, if you want, but there's no like, there's no regular event like that where like the best poets of New York City are convening (laughs) like uh, definitely not nightly or weekly and not even like monthly like there's nothing i'm like oh i'm gonna go to that event and i'm gonna see these poets i know that i really like there's nothing like faf's uh yeah exactly where whitman and all those cats hung out and like just workshopped ideas back in the day so but there i mean there are events where like if you go to a reading with like a famous enough poet like and it's like maybe it's at like poet's house or nyu or Columbia or something like you, you, you probably will see some poets, you know, but there, none of those are regular events. So like all these different like universities here or like other nonprofits like Poets House or the Academy of American Poets, they will have like some events like a reading series or something like that. We have a reading series too, but they're, and they're, they're regular in the sense that maybe they're monthly or bi-monthly or something like that, but it's, you're not going to see the same people at those all the time. Whereas the YAP, maybe because it's monthly, and this, so again, so far as I know, is like, first, it's, it's got to be the biggest, if not the only, <laughs> like, monthly public writing class, right? Where you don't, you don't have to, like, register in advance. You can just drop in, and there's a different teacher every month. And then you have an open mic. And there are, of course, regular open mics. But, again, like, this is the one where you're combining that class format with the open mic format. And then you're seeing a lot of the same people every month so we have this great group now of regulars they're usually our members 
uh, we can't we just think of them as the yoppers. And then, but every month there's also new people, mm-hmm. right? So those new people kind of get integrated with the regular people. And you always see some of the new people that get really entranced by it. And like they'll maybe start coming every month. And you'll see people come, maybe they come for like six months, maybe they come for 10, and then maybe they kind of recede, like they stop coming. And it's not because of anything we did. It's just like, yeah, yeah, that's how it people, works. Yeah. And then some people, like they just come all the time now, right? And then maybe some people could come like two or three months and then they stop, right? And then some people just come once, right? But it's great because like now we do have a sense of like, a Brooklyn poetry community. Yeah. Uh, and I think it really is kind of centered around what we do. And so those people will start going to our reading series events. They'll start going to our workshop showcase, which is where our students and teachers read. But it's it's great because they get integrated with the teachers, right? This is how the teachers and students meet. Mm-hmm. And so what we've seen is a lot of these people who, to really now start answering your question, a lot of these people who didn't come through the academic world like I did, like, usually if you want to publish poems, like, not that you have to get an MFA first, but what you have to do is send your poems out to journals, right? And there's a lot of rejection involved. You have to try and try and try and try again. But it's hard to get a, a book published without first publishing a lot of poems in journals and then kind of acclimating yourself to that process of sending work out and then sort of understanding that the way poets usually get published with their first book is like you have to enter contests. So first of all, you have to develop a manuscript. Then you submit that manuscript to contests. Like you can't just send that to like a publisher because they're they're not going to read it, right? Especially if it's a big publisher. Like almost no publishers will just take unsolicited poetry manuscripts. So you either have to send to their, what they call an open reading period, or it's a contest that they have where like they pay a judge, the judge picks a manuscript, and then they publish that. So that's what happened with my first book. Um but it's really hard to like start getting like you're not just going to start getting readings <laughs> right so it took me like years like i had to publish a book and now like i published three full length books and then also like i got an mfa i got a phd and now i teach in a university and that's how you start getting your name out there and then people will start inviting you to read and they'll, they'll actually pay you to read right at their university or for a reading series or something like that but that took that's taken me since I was like 23. Yeah, That's, you're uh, kind of getting up there. <laughs> yeah, like I started my MFA, I think, when I was 23, you know, and now I'm 43. It's been like a 20-year process. Mm-hmm. But the people we've seen in our YAWP community, like they, most of them have not gotten an MFA, right? They didn't do that, right? So, and most of them were not published before they started with us, but they came to the YAWP. And what, what's amazing is, like, you see the rapid development because not only are they writing something new every month, mm-hmm. you know, in the class, but then they're practicing yeah. their poems every month, right, by reading at the YOP. And it's great practice. Like, that makes you a better poet. Not just a better performer, but it well, makes you a better say, poet. I was going to say, it gives you, I mean, it gives you something to look forward to every month. Yeah. Not well, getting rejected. it gives rejected. you reps, too, right? Well, yeah, it's but just you're like not dancing. getting rejected uh, every week by a, some sort of, journal exactly what i noticed when i was at the yop is that even if it's not great everybody's super supportive Mm -hmm. nobody's rolling their eyes i think it's like everybody's cheerleading for everybody yeah it's super because they know they've been there and they they witnessed that that takes a lot of courage to go up there yeah in front of a room full of people yeah um it's it's something that i i wish we could cultivate more in tango because i feel like tango can be really judgmental yeah, I mean anything can be judgmental, but I know. Um, <laughs> I've experienced that in the Tango World. One that's, thing I love—that's why I got burned out in the Tango World. <laughs> well, when I when I used to, I'm going to Buenos Aires again in January, but when I used to go a lot, and one thing I noticed was the younger generation dancers—they would perform all the time, yeah. and everybody 
would cheer. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Ask, I mean, it was really cool to see. Yeah. There was yeah. such an, an, an nourishing. I'm sure there's also like a lot of cutthroat, a lot of bullshit, whatever. Yeah. But the the little sect that I was checking out here and there, yeah. they were like, oh, you know, Flocky, the guy named Flocky was like getting into the scene and he would go perform and right. everybody was just like, they would make him do five songs. They were like yeah. always rooting and. And I feel like that doesn't happen here, no. <laughs> I feel that. Well, I feel in terms of the 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 cheering. Yeah. I feel like most people don't know when to clap. Like. Yeah. Right. I think they're afraid <laughs> to acknowledge that they saw some, or or they don't even know if they saw some. Like. Right. Unless you do the same step ten times in a row, <laughs> they don't know what they're witnessing right, a lot of the right, time, right. so they're not sure they should be clapping. So you'll hear like one like. And then they'll stop, and they'll be like, "Oh, should I have clapped there?" I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I think I, I should announce this more, but I don't want to demand things of people. But I wish people clapped more. Yeah. And showed more enthusiasm. It's funny you say that because I, you know, so to give aside, I do want to return to the some of the stuff I was talking about with the the community forming. But as a side note, you know, in running our reading series, which is different, reading series is more maybe like a tango event or performance where. I invite poets who who are published already with books, and our format is we had three poets and we pay them to read. So that's not an open like we've like curated the lineup, and the audience comes. You just hear three poets, and they each read for about eighteen minutes, right? And I've realized that you know it's just something about New York, or maybe it's certain sectors of New York, or just certain sectors of the Brooklyn community that are super. They're just like judgmental, and they and like you go to readings. I realize like I would go to readings or do readings myself, and like very. Very rarely would people clap after a poem. They usually wait till the end, and they almost think like that's what you're supposed to do. And like, why? Why should that be what you're supposed to do? But what happens is people get super judgmental, and like, it just seems to be this like silent resentment that happens. Mm -hmm. Like you're you're not there to enjoy the poet so much as you're there to judge. Why did this poet get invited over me? Uh Right? Because often you have poets in the audience, right? It's not just regular people. So I would realize as an MC for the reading series, like I would have to like when I'm introducing the event, like actually ask people to get into it. Almost like not telling them to clap, but just be like, you know what, this is not a normal poetry reading that you go to like in Bushwick where it's just like it's pretty much just white people and everyone's kind of silently judging each other. I was like, we're not gonna have that kind of poetry reading. We're gonna have a diverse audience, a diverse lineup where you're not just seeing white poets. And we're all going to enjoy ourselves, right? We're here to celebrate the poets, so fuck yes. Clap after a poem if you like it. If something is funny, you can laugh while the poet is reading. Like, they are going to love that. Every now and then you'll have a poet. Remember when Ilya Kaminsky read for us? Like, he just likes to read his poem straight through. Uh, And he told the audience actually not to clap because Mm -hmm. he didn't want to stop after each poem. So, like, I totally get that. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, like, the poets are, like, craving that, right? Because they're used to, as you were saying, just, like, being alone and, like, not having any kind of response. And they read a funny poem and people are just dead silent. And it's awful. Like, you feel like the poem is failing. It's an echo chamber. You're like, oh, dear. Whereas, like, you read at the Yop and, like, shit is funny. People are into it, right? Mm -hmm. It's a totally different kind of warmth. But to return to what I was saying about, like, the these poets who would start with us and they they weren't published and they didn't know how to go about doing that. But like slowly over time, I realized like our community was like professionalizing them. So it was kind of like an MFA, but it was actually better because they were getting a different teacher every month at the Yop, right? So they were being exposed not only to different techniques, but to different styles, right? And then they were meeting those people, right? And they were kind of seeing how that person did what they did, right? So they get to ask lots of questions that way. And then a lot of these people like Julie Hart, who now actually teaches for us, you know, she's actually a great 
example of this, right? So she was originally just a student of ours. And then she would start to take the five-week workshops where you really focus. I mean, it's more money, but then you really generate poems and you workshop them with a small group with a particular teacher that you like. And she's probably taken like 10 to 15 workshops probably before she started teaching for us. Then we have the annual retreat that we have where you like study with four different teachers over a weekend, right? Uh, All that over time, plus reading your poems every month, like it makes you a better poet. It doesn't Mm -hmm. just make you a better performer because you start hearing yourself. You see how the crowd reacts. When I did my MFA, I was there for three years at University of Houston. I think I gave maybe three readings. Wow. Because there wasn't like an open mic down there. Like there was no student run open mic. It wasn't anything either affiliated with the university or even within the city of Houston that I found. So you'd have to wait for these sort of graduate reading series. Like you'd sign up. (laughs) So I think I read twice. And then there was like one other thing that happened in the library that I read for. And so you're not practicing. And, you know, it's not like I I think I was a good reader, but... I wasn't getting that monthly exposure to an audience, which I think is so helpful. And I also wasn't writing that much my first year because like you were only writing like in your classes, right? So my first class there, like it it didn't push me to write because it wasn't generative. Like I was just supposed to be writing on my own and bringing in the poems. And it wasn't until my second class, my spring semester, where the my professor Ed Hirsch was forcing us to write a poem every week. That's when I really started developing, mm-hmm. right? So I realized how important generative writing classes are. So all these poets, like Julie Hart, Arthur Russell, Julia Knobloch, who has a book launch happening this September. Julia Knobloch also hadn't published poems before she started with us. She won uh, the Yacht Poem of the Year Award, just like Arthur Russell did. Now she got a book coming out, oh. right? And she's reading for our series now in September, like two days before her book launch. So we have tons of stories like that. My, my poet, uh, my poet, one of my former students, Candace Williams, uh, this amazing black lesbian poet, had started, I taught her in a Brooklyn Poets class and in a Kaveh Khan workshop, which is another great nonprofit uh, specifically supporting black poets. And she just like fucking was amazing. Like I think because she was taking two classes simultaneously, she was writing like two poems a week mm-hmm. and you saw her develop so, first of all, she's brilliant too, but she developed so quickly. And she had like a chapbook within like I think a year. And the chapbook was published by uh, the Atlas Review, which is run by Natalie Eilbert, who's one of our professors, right? So, like, you're talking about networking. Like, it's, it was just, an, I would see this happen where students who are unpublished would very quickly professionalize because they would meet other teachers, right. they would take yeah. classes, and often those teachers were running journals and presses, right? And not to say that Natalie published her because she was a Brooklyn Poets student. Like, she had, still had to submit to the contest and, and get through the rounds of reading and, and get picked by the judges. But uh, and now Candace teaches for us, right? Yeah, but you're giving so, people sort of like a more direct access point. Yeah. Because they're seeing each other face-to-face. Yeah. Um, it happens a lot quicker than it does when you just do a traditional MFA. And also we offer an MFA workshop where people that have taken our classes, they, they take this. Now it's, an, it's always been an online class. It's called a boot camp. And it helps them prepare their application materials. And those people are getting into, like, all the top programs. Like, last year, people got into, like, Iowa, which is, I don't think that's a great program, <laughs> but it's considered by many. It's certainly the most famous MFA program. So we had people get into that. People got into Hunter, which is super hard to get into because they take, like, three poets a year. Oh. NYU, Columbia, and they were getting funding, you know, like, not just getting in, but getting scholarships. Um, so... You know, it's amazing to see. Like, I see, you see this with Sacred Street where they now advertise 
their business by sh- like they have like numbers of like all of the people who've gone on to publish books. Like I think Jennifer Egan is one of them who's super famous now. And she's just one example, right? And I was just thinking like, you know, we're almost I think this is our eighth year. In two thousand twelve we'll have our ten year anniversary and I'm just thinking, like, by 2012, like, the roster of people we're going to have who've gone on to publish... Yeah, 2022. The roster of people we'll have who've gone on to publish books, uh, who started as students with us, or who have become teachers either for us or for other organizations, it's going to be a long list, right? And there's bound eventually to be someone who took a class with us who turns into, like, a Jennifer Egan, right, who goes on to, like, be super famous and, like, wins a Pulitzer Prize. I, I know that day will happen. I don't know when. It'll be great if it happens soon because <laughs> that'd be great advertising for us. But uh, right. it's so much more satisfying to see that happen than to just do it in academia. Because, frankly, academia sucks, Adam. <laughs> well, just, I've never been a someone that teaches it. in academia and lives off it, it it's got so many I've, problems. I've only heard what sounds to me like horror stories about the whole <laughs> systematic way you have to go through it and this and that. Um, but I just wanted to say, like, it's got to be fucking cool. Like you said, 2022, you'll be 10 years. Uh, you had this idea. You made a T-shirt that helped you get more ideas. <laughs> yeah. You know, based on the name and the logo. And, yeah. and now you're pumping out, like, or helping encourage and support yeah. you know, this community of writers and, and poets. Yeah. Just because, you know, you were thinking you might need an, another job. Yeah. I'm always, I always like to look back at and connect the dots between how, like, I'm sitting here right now because of a choice I made when I was... Yeah, sixteen. Right? I know you're fucking crazy, man. But or but all of us. I'm not trying to turn it around on me. But you just like moved here <laughs> well, <laughs> to do tango. <laughs> but I just wanted. I just mean like you, you. When you look back and connect the dots, sometimes it's just it's insane. Like yeah. you know, LeBron James comes back to Cleveland. <laughs> we win a championship. You and I start hanging out. Then the Indians go to the World Series. So then we start hanging out. Like, if we didn't have a postseason that year, we wouldn't be hanging out so much, right? We spent, like... The importance of sports, ladies and gentlemen. We spent, like... Don't underestimate sports. I wanted to talk about this because I have a lot of friends. You know, Tango has its own subculture. And and if if you do anything outside of it, to a lot of people in Tango, they're just like, what do you mean you... Yeah, I know. You what do you mean you have dance? other interests? You didn't go out dance. Well, that's why. I, <laughs> Are I, you human? Yeah, that's why I'm fascinated by you because you have a lot of interests. I yeah. mean, also you have a memory. Like you're like we're watching the game the other night. And you're like, God, you remember? You remember that game in '97, the third <laughs> inning when so and so? I'm like, what the fuck? I was yeah. probably tripping on acid or something. Like, I yeah. don't remember anything. I am a true fan. I'm obsessed. <laughs> but since I was 1987. Say, like the uh, the sport. The thing about sports that I like because. Uh, quick story. I think it was three World Cups ago. I was living down on Seventh Avenue, and it was it was when we played. I forget where, but the, all the games were on in the morning. Yeah. And I would go to and the and the you know the, the men's team was in, so right. I was like walking around watching. <laughs> unlike it, the last. Time. Unlike the last time. <laughs> and I just remember, but I was also watching other teams. But what I loved was like you would go to a coffee shop, and everybody was there. Yeah. And we would about just all be rooting together, yeah. right? And then. That World Cup ended. It's the only time when all of America watches sports. Yeah. Which is so frustrating to me. So it ends. And, and it's, it's awesome. Everyone loves it. It ends at the end of June, and I'm like, now I'm lost. You know, <laughs> I've got no sports community. Exactly. So I started going to the bar, the carriage house, that I took you and Tony to the one time that's closed now. And the Yankees were on, and the Tigers were playing or something, you know. And I'm sitting there, and I don't know anything about baseball. I hadn't watched baseball in 20 years. But I started going there once a week or once every other week and getting to know the people through the sports. Right. Yeah. And that was really what got me back into sports. Was that yeah. it, it? It was it was just like tango or 
open right. mic. Like exactly. it's an it's a venue. It's it's a thing that brings people together. Yeah. And I know a lot of people roll their eyes. Oh, they're overpaid. These athletes, blah blah blah. Yeah. First of all, they work really fucking hard. So they do. You know, <laughs> they are but, overpaid. Um, but yeah. You know. But I, I just feel like it's a skill problem. <laughs> I think they should be paid well, but Jesus, like I'm not paid well enough, and neither are you. Like, why are these athletes paid so much for their skill? Yeah, well, but TV. it's probably because it's more entertaining than yeah, you know, yeah, poetry or tango, I guess. I mean, it's it's such a subculture. Like every child is encouraged to do something. With, yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right, though. Like everything has a subculture. This is what I find fascinating. I mean, the reason why I got into sports. Which is why when people eye roll you know, my sports session, I just eye roll back because I'm just like, it's fine for you to do that. It's not like you have to be interested in sports because like you're gonna have your own interests. But like, sports are awesome because they are about community, and mm. like that's why I got into it. Like I was living in, uh, we had just so I had moved around a lot as a kid. So I was born in New York, and then when I was like two and a half, we moved to Toledo. That's where my little sister was born. Toledo's got the mud hens, but I was like, I was too young to like get into sports. But, you know, then when uh, I was, I guess it was 86, maybe, I guess I was about seven, my dad started getting all these different job offers. So, like, he got a better job offer in Cleveland. So that's when we made the move to Cleveland. Hmm. But when we moved to Cleveland, we moved around a lot when we got there. So we didn't finally move into the home we live in, or my parents live in now, until I think it was, like, 87 or 88. We must have moved there in, like, 85. But... I was really sad, first of all, to be moving to Cleveland, and my, my parents would cheer me up. They're like, you know, Cleveland is cool because it's, it's an actual city, and they have, like, sports. And I wasn't really, I didn't know what sports were, but I remember the first <laughs> time when we drove into Cleveland, we passed the old municipal stadium, and that's when they had... I the mean, big uh, the, Chief Wahoo. Yeah, the, the super racist Chief Wahoo. <laughs> that was still up there by the municipal stadium. I mean, it is a super racist logo, but I remember being, like... I don't know if I was excited, but that image stayed in my memory. Like, I can still remember passing it on the high and be like, whoa, what is that? Right? And then in 86, this is before I got into baseball, like, or actually before I got into Indians baseball, but what happened was, like, the Browns were amazing, right? That was the Bernie Kosar Browns in mm -hmm. 86 when they went 12-4. and four. It kind of feels like what this year could be like with Baker. Um, and so I got super into the Browns, and I was like, Whoa, what is this thing that like everyone is into? Like, because you could talk about it with everyone. Because uh, I was just like the super lonely kid. I was the only son. I was a middle child. Like, my sisters were not really interested in sports. But then even they were into the Browns football. And like, we were playing tennis all the time. That was like my sport as a kid. And I go to the tennis, the racket club, and like everyone there was like following the Browns. So that's what you talked about, right? Like, I didn't get talk about anything else with them. I was like this, you know, like this lonely green kid. And then in school, too, like how you make friends, you talk about sports. Mm -hmm. And then I started moving, like changing schools a lot, right? Between like, between fourth and third and fourth grade, fourth and fifth grade, fifth and sixth, and then eighth and ninth, I changed schools. Right? Wow. So super alienating. <laughs> and I was just like super lonely because I had to make friends constantly over and over again. And uh, by the way, were you the only Korean American kid? I wasn't the only one, but there weren't, pretty... weren't, weren't many of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then also, I mean, it's good that you bring that up because also within the Korean community, because my parents were Buddhist, we didn't have uh, this sort of community of uh, like other sort of fellow Christians because most Koreans in our area yeah. were Christian, mm -hmm. right? And it's a pretty common thing in America. So like we weren't going to church and I wasn't meeting other Korean kids, so I was only meeting them at school, right? Mm -hmm. So I felt kind of alienated from other Koreans even. Um, and then when I got into, I got into Indians baseball in 1987, the spring, I was in this amazing fifth grade class 
And I still remember the day. I didn't have no idea what like opening day was, but opening day rolls around. And back in the day, you know, those those were always in the afternoon. I think now they maybe like four o'clock or something. But I think it was at like one o'clock. And the Indians were supposed to be really good that year. I don't know if you remember this. They were on the <laughs> no co- Meadows Five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. They were on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the, the infamous cover. Oh, that was the, the one, SI yeah. Jinx. The first Joe G- Carter, the first Jinx, yeah. Corey Schneider on the cover. And but they were really good in '86, and everyone thought they were going to be amazing in '87. But they had no pitching, <laughs> so they ended up being terrible. But I remember how excited my classmates were because they were all like huge baseball fans. They were so excited. They all brought their Walkmans to listen to the game. Hmm. And our teacher had to just stop class eventually because she was like trying to get everyone to stop listening to their their headphones and they wouldn't do it. They were just doing it in secret. And she's like, all right. So she just like gets a television, pulls it in. I think it was like the last period. So she's like, we can watch it now. And we were getting crushed. <laughs> but it was it was a harbinger of thing to come, things to come. But I was again I was like, Wow, what is that? Like that is awesome. Like what is this thing that people are so obsessed with? That was probably the last time I noticed other people like really into sports because I didn't realize that actually that was just a special group of kids. Yeah. But I got really into baseball that summer. And it was cool to me because it was this thing that happened every day. You remember you talked about like after the World Cup, like, oh, what do I do now? There's like a loss. And I was like, baseball is awesome because it's even better than football because it happens like almost every day. And the season is like forever. You know, and baseball is cool because <laughs> like anytime, I feel like anytime you turn on the TV or your phone, like yeah. there's a game happening. Once October hits and then yeah. like November, December, I'm like, and then you're I have to recalibrate my yeah. my schedule because there's not always that fix every day. Of yeah. like, even if the tribe's losing and they're not playing well, there's yeah. at least there's that distraction. Yeah, something to well, kind of take you your mind off. It gives things. you something to follow. You know, yeah. like every day. And then you, it's like this community thing. You're like, wow, all these people are into it. Then you can connect with other fans. You listen to radio shows before the days of podcasts. Listen to radio shows. You go to the games, which of course is awesome. I should have mentioned that also that previous fall in '86. That's actually the first time I really watched baseball. That's when the uh, the Mets won the World Series. That amazing World Series against mm. the Red Sox, and that was just like magical to me because I was like from New York, so I rooted for the Mets. This is back when I was like, I can root for New York teams and Cleveland teams. And then I realized I can't do that. Um, (laughs) But that was just like, I was like, oh, my God. Like, does this always happen in baseball? Like, that series. And then I realized that series was actually really unique. Like, the ball going through Buckner's legs. I was just like, oh, this this sport is incredible. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to follow the Indians, and that's going to happen. And then they lost 102 games that year. (laughs) It was 101 or 102. I can't remember. I feel like... One thing that I I love about sports is that even if I meet somebody who's really into foot soccer, football, whatever. Yeah. When you meet another fan, you understand. Yeah, you understand. Whether you don't other. even like the sport or yeah. not, you're just like, I get it. Yeah, that's how I connected with my like brother. People are like, oh, I hate baseball, and it's like, yeah. But I love this, and it's like, yeah. Yeah. I also, the more I learn about baseball, because again, I just again, I, I mean. I just started watching it maybe six years ago. We when when uh, Perez was our closer and he was terrible. <laughs> Chris Perez. Yeah. Wow. So I think that's seven years ago. 2013, when they won ten ago. in a row to finish the season, got yeah. the wild card. Yeah, yeah. And it was they, like when Tito first came on. And board. then they lost. Back when Salazar was throwing mm-hmm. 100 miles an hour. So now he throws 88. <laughs> what was I gonna say? Uh, so I'm still learning about baseball, and uh, the more I learn, oh, it's the nuances. Like, there's a documentary called Fastball on Netflix. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, right. You told they me show, about that. Um, I haven't watched that yet. Who's our Bob Feller? Like they the show mechanics. an old video of yeah. Bob Feller pitching at the same time a motorcycle goes yeah. by so they could try to right. time the ball. I've seen that. 
that guy, um, threw, that guy threw hard. Um, but the more you understand, like the nuances and like how each pitch, each pitcher is studying the batter, and each pitch based on what was just thrown before and what might be thrown right. after. Yeah, I mean all of where the infielders move and slightly shift, and then they hit it right into it, and it's yeah. like. And then how they pull the bat or don't pull the bat. I mean, there's yeah. so many things that the average person who just says, I hate baseball, has no idea about. They're idiots. They're just like, oh, it's so slow. And it's <laughs> like, well, that's also really nice because, you know, it. like, you can start a game, go to the grocery store, yeah. you know. That's go, what's great whatever, about it. Come that's back later, I'm, it's the third inning. Like, every time they say it's slow, I'm just like, <laughs> I can't help you. Cause, <laughs> and that, I mean, honestly, that's why I'm not surprised I got into literature, first of all, and then poetry. And this is what I always tell my students, like, Literature, especially poetry, is about slowness. Hmm. You need to understand that first. If and you probably say the same thing about tango, yeah, right? For sure. Especially when you're learning it. So if you if you are here for the quick fix, or if you're here to skip the steps, but there's plenty of other dances. Yeah, for that. and you want to like get something that's fast and fun. Like this is not the art for you. And mm-hmm. if you're if you're not into baseball because it's slow. That's fine, but it's not the sport for you. Yeah, like, right. you should go watch basketball. Perfect. And basketball yeah. is super fun. I love basketball too, but it doesn't have that same. Uh, I mean, there's subtleties, of course, in every sport, but what's great about baseball is that it's slow. Like, it's all about the pauses. It's a game that literally stops <laughs> every time the pitcher throws the ball, and then if the batter hits it, then something happens. But then after that, it stops again. And then the, you, you have to wait until the pitcher throws the ball again. I tried it. It's Sometimes always when I teach, pausing with every pitch. I, I, I relate tango to ba- I said if tango was a sport, it would be baseball. Yeah. Because it's all about the anticipation. Right. Like you don't when you dance tango, if you're just moving around the whole time, you're not dancing tango. Exactly. You're dancing something else. And you don't know, but you don't know that in the beginning, right? No, you have no, to no. learn that. As but a that's student, like right? baseball. It's like yeah, you hold back, you and then you're you're as a fan and as a player, you're waiting yeah for that thing. One one buddy put it to me really interestingly too. He said like baseball's the only sport where the defense has the ball. Yeah, exactly. which I think is amazing. And I then know. when Anna's father was here. And we went to that below zero game in Cleveland in April. <laughs> yeah, and I, we Good were all times. teaching him like about the sport. Right. I remember telling him like. Because he was so confused about how you score. How does the ball score? And I was I remember saying, like, no, the people are the points. And just saying that out loud made yeah. me love baseball even more. Yeah. The people I was are like, the, the people are the points. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so fucking the cool. People score it's not the about runs. the ball. Yeah. I mean, it's about the ball. But yeah. if you don't have a man in scoring, like even the phrase man in scoring position right, right. or the lead, the what the tying run is at the plate, like right. all of those things are designed around the human. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just so fucking cool. Yeah. Well, there's so many great. Uh, that's a great way of putting it. There's so many great baseball writers I love, who you should. I don't know if I've recommended some of these to you. You should read them. Uh, one of the old commissioners, Bart Giamatti. He's sort of the the, the famous commissioner because he's the one that banned Pete Rose from baseball. Hmm. And I remember when he did that. I was too young. I was just like, oh, but Pete Rose is great. Who is this asshole that banned Pete Rose from the game? And then I did more research, and I was like, wow, Pete Rose was actually an asshole who bet on his own games that he was managing. That's terrible. He definitely should have been banned. But then um, I went to so I went to college at Yale, and I found out that Bart Giamatti was also a former president of Yale. Hmm. And then I just saw, I don't know how I found this out, but then I found out that like he also was a baseball writer, right? He was like a huge fan of baseball. He he by the way is the father of the actor Paul Giamatti. No uh, shit. Yeah, who I would sometimes pass in Brooklyn Heights when I lived there, wow. and I'd be like, "Hey, Harvey Picar, did you ever see that movie?" <laughs> yeah. about- <laughs> My dad had Harvey I just thought Picard. of it as Harvey Picard, not so, Paul Giamatti. Actually, Gimotti. now that you mention it, I'll just a quick sidebar about yeah. Harvey. My dad used to do a variety show at Lakewood Library, uh-huh. and he had Harvey Picard come in and, yeah, and read awesome. or give a speech or do something. Yeah, yeah. yeah so my dad that guy met was, was great. But, 
Oh, Marching Madness. So he has these beautiful essays about baseball. They're like they're kind of like poetry. Hmm. Uh, the the most famous one begins with this sentence: "It breaks your heart." <laughs> it's the first sentence, and he was a Red Sox fan, so you can imagine what he was writing about. But but he had these great ways of conceptualizing baseball. Like what's so great about it is that it sort of draws upon myth, right? Like it's like you talk about it this way. It's like it's a wandering to find home. <laughs> like it starts with a man throwing a rock at another man. <laughs> oh, the and the man is trying to get home. You know what? I wonder if he was a if he helped Field of Dreams, yeah. like one of the best movies Great ever. Movie. Kevin Costner says something like, there's a man with a stick and a mm-hmm. man with a rock. Yeah. You know? It's something just mythical. I wonder if he helped write or human. was like, in, or they he got influenced have, by his writing have, or they something. They may have read that essay or some of those Kevin essays. Costner, by the way, yeah. is in every sports movie that's yeah. ever Kevin Costner is, is he's ended up having a great acting career, but he is a great uh, sports actor. Yeah. Like, he's, yeah. he's the goat of sports movies. Mm-hmm. You know, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, yeah. even like for the, the love draft, of the game. Draft day. Oh my God! Yeah, he was. That's in that a one great too. movie. Yeah, he's always the baseball. Sort of like an under the radar great sports movie. And I also like yeah. what they say in that movie about how like even your best player only gets like yeah tw- two. You know, he only well, hits the ball like one out of ten. A times. great hitter fails seven out of ten <laughs> times. You know, but I so appreciate what you've been saying about baseball because it's, it really is about slowness, and I feel like these are where I, moments I get excited because you see the connections between like baseball and tango and poetry and this is why i love all three of those things you know uh i mean i've done other dances like salsa and swing but like tango is the one i got most obsessed with because i was like this is like baseball and poetry but i would say that to people and they were like what are you talking about it's got nothing to do with those things i'm like you don't get it (laughs) and that's fine but i get it (laughs) yeah but yeah tango is is great that way because it's so much about the pauses like building the tension and and I realized after a while, because be- when I was like learning like ganchos and shit, I was like, I want to do this all the time. And then Robin one day was like, you really got to retire that gancho. <laughs> it's like, he's like, you're doing it too much. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's not really about that. And then yeah. I would talk to some followers, and, or I shouldn't call them followers. I'd talk to, to women, and they'd just be like, you know, I don't always like doing ganchos. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just nice when you have a good embrace and you're moving to the music. And like, it could be really simple. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really nice dance. And I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm going to start dancing more that way. Yeah. But in the beginning, you just want to, like, impress everyone. Because to get back to what we were talking about earlier, because, like, you can feel everyone judging you, especially when yeah. you're learning. And it's like, I remember those days at Robin's Practicum. Man, that shit was intense. Because it's like all the good dancers <laughs> are sitting together. You were probably fucking among them, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, You just feel like every time you pass them around the floor, you're just like, oh, now i got to do something impressive because they're all watching me and I have to, like, show off. Otherwise, they won't dance with me. What I didn't realize is they're not going to dance with you anyway. Because <laughs> they don't know you and they yeah, know yeah. you're, like, a beginner. So I pretty much could have just, like, done something simple and, like, no one would have cared. <laughs> but I would almost always, like, screw up when I passed that part of the floor because, like, I was nervous. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, we've all been there. Yeah. Uh, going to Argentina every year, you're like, it's like that times 100 because you've got, like, you've got, like, legends, living yeah. legends. It's like, imagine you go to a poetry reading and, like, yeah. one time I yeah, performed in front of Horacio uh, many years ago. I was in Chicago and, and we had to perform. And they asked everybody to come in close, which I don't like because oh, then boy. I have less room and oh, whatever. <laughs> and then, like, who comes walking in? Horacio, our teacher, right? Uh-huh. Who is, like, to me, like, one of the top. And it was terrible. It was, like, one of the worst performances. <laughs> but a friend, uh, one of his students who's based in Chicago who used to teach at La Veruta, 
he came up to me and he was like, I really like, since the last time I've seen you, you've really developed and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dude, I was still shaking when he was complimenting me. <laughs> and I was like, dude, that sucked. And he's like, well, you know, performing in front of her house was like having sex in front of your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. And, and that's the same that thing. That would like, be intimidating. When you're in front of like a group of people that are, you know, you think they're, they probably don't even pay attention. Like yeah, I literally, right. to be honest, like I right. remember seeing you at the practica, um, but I don't, I, don't I don't really pay dance. attention. Right. Exactly. Yeah, like, I don't think anybody. I mean, if they, if people do, they're just fucking assholes, and you're yeah. not gonna, you're not gonna dance through that assholeness of yeah. somebody else. Like, yeah. no matter how good you are, they're still gonna be an asshole. Right. Exactly. So fuck it. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's super. I always. I, I always like marvel at the, the, the any dancers really because like the, like especially when the crowd comes in close I'm just like I love dancing but like I would not perform <laughs> you know especially in swing when everyone's like really encouraging you to like you know do contests and stuff mm -hmm. uh, it's much more encouraging I would say than the tango community but I was just like oh no because <laughs> I know if I did that I would just sort, I would just blank I would be like what am I gonna do next <laughs> you know. But and, and I would do that thing where I just try to like show off, and that's not a good dance. Well, speaking of performing, you know? I did hear you read, uh, what was it, that bar in the back in Brooklyn, the when sugar uh, Pete's candy store. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh right. So I wanted to ask you, you, I mean, I, I have, like I said, I've seen some open mic, and I've right. seen the ones back home years ago. But you really come like I think you really like to read. It sounds like yeah. you really like to read because yeah. you really know how to command the microphone. Yeah. I felt bad for the guy that came after you. His poems were really good, but he obviously right. doesn't like to read. Yeah, so you I don't even know why he was there. He wasn't like reading into the mic. Yeah. Um, and then the person, the woman before you, she was pretty good too. But yeah. you like seemed to really enjoy it. And I remember you made a comment at the yacht because a student of yours had read, and after I think she was finished, you'd mentioned how. She took a workshop with you on reading, and you liked the way she was spacing out her words more, or or right, emphasizing right. the P's, or you said something about, oh, we just <laughs> talked about that in the workshop, or somebody yeah. else taught a workshop on it. Yeah, it wasn't a workshop on reading, but it mu we must have been just talking about maybe, yeah, Leo. So, no. do you have uh, <laughs> when it comes to writing poetry? Do you have you see? So the only time I heard you, well, you sent me the baseball one. Um, and then when I heard you, you were the kind baseball, of... The baseball, what are you talking about? The, the essay? Uh, the essay. About the World Series? About the World Series. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily a poem. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, that was an essay. Um, but still something. No, you did I, send I me a poem writing. about tango. That's oh, true. right. Yeah, yeah the one that. I dedicated to Robin. Yeah. Yeah, Close um, Embrace. Maybe I'll put that on the, the description. Yeah, I like that poem a lot. So I'll put that on the description. Not, again, the, not to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but no, there's poems, like that, there's do, poems like I've written do. that I like a lot, and there's poems I like less. But um, what was I going to say? Um, the one poem you read was a very angry poem about some a, oh, a yeah. racist person. Jeff Koo. <laughs> yeah, they, they, these people called me do Jeff, you just, Jeff Do you Koo. just uh, <laughs> feel inspired and then just write about whatever? Do you have a specific yeah. thing you like to write about more than others? Or Yeah, it's... I mean, it's kind of a dumb question, but I'm no, just curious. No, it's not dumb. Uh, it's... I would say it's like changed over the years. Uh, I don't know. Like I feel like when I was younger, I would like wait to be inspired, quote unquote inspired. Like I would wait to like feel something. Right. <laughs> like I'm in the mood to write a poem, right? <laughs> but that didn't usually go very well, you know, because like you don't really have like a concrete sense of like what to do. I don't think there's much craft in that. Yeah. No. I mean, imagine being like, I'm inspired to dance a tango. No. <laughs> like, that's not really how you like learn to do tango well, right? So. Uh, I learned after a while that like y you kind of have to have 
not just an idea. At least this is how my process works. Every poet is different. So I, I've heard some poets just say, like, yeah, I don't like to start with any ideas. <laughs> I just, like, go to the page and, like, fool around. I'm like, hmm, that doesn't work for me. But for me, I kind of have to have an idea, um, like, what I want to sort of focus on in terms of the material. And then I have to have, like, a formal idea. And by formal idea... I mean like a, a technique for the poem, right? So in poetry, we have this thing called form, right? And there's many different kinds of form. Uh, so you can write a more traditional form. This might have been what I was talking about maybe with a student, like where you're doing something like blank verse, or you're doing a sonnet, where you're writing in meter. Or you can write in free verse, which, which is the field is wide open. Like free verse is got, consists of many different forms, right? Like so you could write a poem. A kind of poem I like to do a lot is like writing a one-sentence poem where the whole poem is a single sentence. And you use that to like build momentum uh, and speed and rhythm and things like that. Or you could write a poem where every line is one sentence each, right? So it's much more like, it's more like walking in tango, I guess. It's like station-to-station -station rhythm. Those are just two extremes. And then there's many different kind of you know, range, there's a whole range within that or the, between those two extremes. So I like to have like a, a formal idea, like what do I want to try in this poem? And every time I write a new poem and then specifically also within the books that I've written, I want to try something new that I haven't done before. So lately what's been happening is like I used to write, uh, I mean, I've always written long poems, but you know, when you're trying to publish, you can't write these super long poems because no one's going to publish them. So I would try to write poems between like a page or a page and a half. And my longest ones, like that close embrace one was maybe like nine, eight or nine pages. But lately I just, I think now it's because I've, publish a couple books I don't give a fuck anymore I'm just, I'm just gonna do what I want and also now with online publishing people will publish really long stuff so now I write these really long poems um, and the new book I'm working on is all long poems and couplets and so the poem you're referencing the angry one which is called Jeff Koo that's actually the shortest poem in the book which is only it's only like two and a half pages I think some people would actually think that's long and I gotta say if yeah. you read it you're not gonna appreciate it the way it sounded when he read it because he was really pissed off when he read it, it was yeah good. like you brought the the page alive yeah sure. yeah that's yeah. what I I, I don't I, I, and I just, it wasn't that one was it the no one? it was it was was that, it or was it uh, didn't I also though read something called best American citizen where I was talking about you did read well you read three yeah I think I read both of you those, read a short actually. one yeah pretty short one you yeah. read one, the Jeff Koo one. Yeah. And then, yeah. I think I, think I also read, read this too. poem, Best American Citizen. But they're, yeah, they're both kind of angry. Jeff Koo is more in an ironic way. But yeah, there are all these long poems and couplets. And I think of them almost like essays. So with this book, the, all of those poems are in couplets. So I had the form already established. And when I would write the poem, I wouldn't so much like be inspired. I would just be like, you know what? I want to write a poem about these these people who had written this thing and referred to me as Jeff Koo, and I'm going to write it in their voice, mm. right? Because I just think that will be a way of getting back at them, right? And it'll also be a way of, like, sort of talking about something I experienced as a Korean-American poet just being completely invisible, and I'll write about it in this ironic way. So that's a pretty specific idea. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, more recently, like, I'm trying to think of... Um, Can I ask why you chose yeah. to read that at that particular venue? Well, with every reading, you get a time frame, right? Uh -huh. So the, the curator will be like, you have 10 minutes or you have 15 minutes, right? So you have to, you have to pick I something yeah. that will fit within that. And so most of my poems are long, so I usually can only read a couple poems. So I'm almost always reading the shorter, long poems. And I, and I try to have a sense like, and I don't want to just read one because that's kind of boring for people. So I try to have at least two or three to put together. But there have been some readings I've done where... Like recently, I went to University of Houston to the what's called the Boldface Conference. It's like a week-long thing. And they gave me like, it was like 
50 minutes they gave me. So I'm not going to read for the whole time because it was like a Q&A. But I had it for like 30 minutes to read. So I actually read like two, I think I read two long poems or maybe I just read one. So there I read one of the newer ones, which is called No Rest, which is specifically about of what it means to be a straight Korean American male in this country, because I've always, for a long time, and like, I mean, honestly, for like probably the last ten years, I thought I would write an essay about this subject, like how Korean American men, specific, especially like the hetero ones, are just not perceived as like sexual beings <laughs> by people, and that's largely because of the media representations of them. So I was like, I gotta write an essay about this. I gotta write an essay, but like, it would never happen because writing essays is really painful for me. It's super slow and slow and not a good way. <laughs> And what I liked about this new form I was working for this this book of poems was like I realized I could write essay like poems much faster, right? Like I could write like a twenty to twenty five page poem in just like a few days, because <laughs> like that's just how my mind works. Like I can just riff off these ideas. So I was like, I'm just gonna. So that's what I've been doing this book. It's like I want to write about like race and, and sexuality in this poem, or I want to write about like there's a poem in there about the Cavs winning. It's called Believe Win. I I want to write a poem about the title that we won. Uh, I want to write a poem about, um, you know, uh, the day after the election, which is the first poem in the book, which was a crazy day because that's the day I found out my friend Kevin, who I think you met at Brother Jimmy's, had committed suicide. Hmm. So it ended up being about, like, baseball, Trump, uh, my friend Kevin, of course, and that poem was, like, 23 pages long. But I don't know, like, what order I'm going to write about things, right? So I just find a starting point, and then I just get going. And now I know with my process, like, if I just... If I write a, an, a long enough or an open enough thing, my, once my mind gets going, it's just going to start riffing through all these various things that I want to talk about. So I'm like, I know I want to talk about like X, Y, and Z at some point in this poem, but I don't know what sequence I'm going to put them in, right? And, and do you edit? Uh, do you go back and edit? Yeah. And then, so like I, now what I'm doing, which is crazy because as the poems are getting longer, which is something that's odd is like I've returned to writing longhand, whereas in the past I would always write poems on my computer. So now I write them all longhand just so that I won't edit as I'm going. Mm. So I'll just keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. And then what's great is like when I type it up, there's an automatic revision process that happens because it doesn't appear like it does. Because the first draft is kind of, it's not shitty, but it's not great. So then I start like changing phrases as I go, right? And I always cut some stuff out and then embellish stuff, make stuff longer. And then, and then I tighten a... it. I was reading Stephen King's On Writing. I don't know if you read mm -hmm. that memoir, but mm -hmm. it's really good. Yeah. And he talks about like the first draft is closed in closed in the, behind the door, close the door. Yeah. The second draft, he like <laughs> gives it like to his like two favorite people, like his wife Tabitha yeah. and like one other person. Do you ever ask anybody to I used to do that more, but so that's a really good question. So the process, yeah, I, for the beginning, I don't let anyone look at it, right? Yeah. So all that is private. I won't show it to anyone because if you sh I realized early on uh, when I was much younger if you show an early draft to someone, it could kill the thing, right? Right, because it might it might not be good right. yet, and it's if not... they see it and they're like, "This sucks," then you're not going to want to work on it, <laughs> right? So like, it's still an embryo. Like, you're not going to like bring an embryo out before it's ready, right? Like, everything has to grow uh, and incubate. So, um, I won't show anyone. Then I'll type it up. This is my process now, <laughs> and kind of like automatically revise, and then still I'll sit with it. So. I realize, again, like in my 20s, like you have to sit with something for a long time because it's not done for a while, right? So uh, for like a period of weeks, sometimes months, I'll keep going back and looking at the poem and like changing it, tightening it, and editing it, right? So a lot of times people see my long poems, they're like, wow, do you edit it all? <laughs> they just think it's like all unfiltered or something? I'm like, no, it's like a pretty extensive process, right? So I might draft it in like a few days or a week, 
but the the whole process will take at least like four or five months where I'm still I'm like still tinkering with stuff in this manuscript. Like I was making edits like four or five days ago to the book. Sometimes I'll just go through the whole book, read it over, and make edits to every poem as I go through. Um, and then eventually I will show it to people, right, and send it out. But now I don't even show it to people. Like I, I realize like maybe after the the last book that like I, I will show it to people because I'm interested in seeing what they they think, but now I sometimes I'll just send it to editors that I know are interested in my work. I'm like, hey, like, what do you think of this poem? Do you want to take it? And then I know if they want it, that they've liked it. <laughs> do you uh, feel like editing's got to be difficult because yeah, you're you're in a moment, you're in a mood. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're more awake. Maybe you're like you choose to take something out or put something in that if you maybe if you edited it. A day later, yeah. you wouldn't have made that same decision. All those things are so interesting, right? <laughs> like you could think it's yourself really, into like really a scary. hole there. Like yeah. I used to feel that way about these when I painted because uh-huh. I would like to assume, as I did, you kind of just kind of know when it's done. Yeah. Or you just don't want to look at it again. You're like, you know what? It's fucking done. I can't look at this fucking thing yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. I have two quote, two great quotes to, uh, to kind of comment on that. Um, one is more famous. It's by Paul Valéry. I don't know what it was in the original French, but he was a 19th century French poet and thinker. And he said that um, no poem is finished. They're merely abandoned. <laughs> and you can, very you, you can apply that that's to That's very all, poetic yeah, into itself. <laughs> you can apply that to all the arts. I think every artist kind of agrees with that idea. It's just like eventually it's kind of done. Like you have a sense, yeah, I feel like it's pretty done, but you can almost always like tinker with something. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why you just have to, especially when you're in the book editing stage, you just have to have someone take it away from you at some point, especially since I'm like super OCD about stuff. And like, I can constantly change something. So someone just has to take it away from me at some point. But then the other quote to get back to what you're saying, which is, was the thing that you're saying about like, when you edit something, you can even apply to like when you compose, right? It's, it, that thought would just fuck me up if I think about it too much. Right. So Don DeLillo has this great quote. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's in, I think it's in his novel Mao Too, where this, this sentence just like blew me away when when I read it. It's something like, uh, uh, like when you're, when you write something great and you feel you wrote something great, there's there's a danger to it because those words almost did not make it to the page. Mm. <laughs> So, if, like, there have been times when, like, I was thinking about going out, and then I stayed in, and ended up writing something that I really liked. I was like, holy shit, if I had gone out, would that thing ever have been right. written, right? And it really will fuck you up. Like, when is the right time to write something, right? I think that's actually why I prefer the long poems, because I realize, like, I feel like that process is less susceptible to time in that way, because I've got the poem open mm. over, like, a period of not just days, but weeks, sometimes months, Right, so it's capturing me at various yeah. points in time in a way that feels much truer to me, and it feels like there's less danger in that to me because I know it's like I'm not gonna miss the idea or something. It's eventually gonna get in there, right? <laughs> and now I've realized I can sit with an idea for a long time, and a lot of times that'll make the poem better, right? So to give you an example of this, like the last poem that went into the book that I just finished right before I went to Brazil in June. Uh, it's called The Rest is Silence. Um, and it was like a poem that I wanted to be kind of like a companion piece to the poem I was talking about earlier, this poem about Korean-American male sexuality. But this one in particular was about whiteness, uh, specifically at my school, because I had just 
I can't get into all the specifics, probably for legal reasons, but like some of the shit that went down uh, this last spring semester uh, over a job search. And I'm, I teach in a super white department. I was, at the time, I was the only person of color that was on the full-time English faculty. They've since now hired uh, a Cuban-American guy. Um, but I really had to say something for that to happen. We had three new hires, and uh, our, the job candidates we were looking at were all white, and no one was having a conversation about how problematic this was, and we were adding to an already all-but-white department by trying to add three new professors who were all going to be white. So I had to kind of like put a wrench in the proceedings and say, wait a second, like what are we doing here? Like we need to talk about the importance of diversity. So I wanted to write about that, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to write about it. And then one day I was, this maybe speaks to your the idea of danger again. One day I was like sitting in this bar I like in Hamden called Micro. It's a little bit, feels like a Brooklyn bar. I like to stop there and like have a drink before I, maybe this sounds bad, but <laughs> just stop there and have a beer before I take an hour and a half drive home because <laughs> I need to cool off. But I was there like a Friday, also because the traffic was bad at like 4 p.m. So I just like to wait till like 6. And I was just sitting there and like I was sitting, I like to sit uh, and work while I have a beer and I don't want to like sit at the bar when I'm doing because it seems weird, but they have this one seat like, there's a bar here, and then, like, there's a, a seat by the window that you can just sit there, and you're not sort of, like, intruding on what feels like the social space. So I would just sit there, like, looking out the window, and it's right in front of the entrance, and you see all the people walking in. So it's great people watching, too. But I realized, I was like, I just kept looking up, and I was like, you know, every person walking in this bar is white. Like, not almost every person, like, every single person for, like, a two-hour period. I was like, this is just incredible, right? And I'm just thinking, like, look at it. And it's not like I haven't looked around the room before in Hamden because Hamden's pretty white. But I'm like, I'm looking around this bar. Like, there's no one else in here that's a person of color. Like, everyone is white. And then every person walking in is white. And I was just like, so slowly and slowly, and this is where the name became ironic, like, I'm just becoming more and more microscopic in this bar. Like, my percentage, the percentage of people who look like me in this bar is just getting more and more microscopic. So that's kind of how the poem started. It was just, like, noticing, just, like, facts. Like, wow, like, every person walking here was white. And I just came from a phone interview. Like, every candidate we're interviewing is white. So it just kind of, like, started riffing off that. But then, you know, because the poem, like, I actually started that poem earlier in the spring, but then this job stuff happened, and it was so traumatic for me that I, I couldn't write the poem anymore, because I wanted to talk about that stuff, but I know, for legal reasons, I can't talk about, like, job search specifics, because it's confidential, like, you can't just, like, talk about that shit in a poem, even if it's considered, like, fiction, so I was like, how am I going to write about that stuff, and eventually I realized the way to write about it was kind of through the lens of the bar, act as if, like, the bar were doing a job search, Right. Also, because the idea of a bar is great because like you're talking about like a bar that is set. So there's a sort of pun there. That's mm -hmm. this is great. If you want to read the poem eventually, now you ha you'll understand how to read it because I'm giving you the, all these insider <laughs> insights. But then because the poem was sort of open so long, I think I started it in February or March and I didn't finish it until June. Um, I was able to kind of arrive at like how to write about the stuff that was super difficult for me to write about. And then what happened is in I think it was in. Uh, early June, after the Walt Whitman bicentennial, so everything's going to come full circle in this podcast, which is great. Now we're returning to talking about Brooklyn Poets and Whitman. But I went to this landmark preservation committee hearing because we were, oh, the, I was part of this uh, group the house, where, they're, yeah. where they're trying to get his house landmark. But that house wasn't even on the docket. But they were looking at specifically LGBT historic sites, including Audre Lorde's home in Staten Island. Um, and that house had already been landmarked because it's a it's part of a historic village over there so it's a beautiful home but they were trying to get it designated also as historic because she lived there right mm -hmm. as an lgbt site but that became fascinating because this 
again, I would look around the room, like almost everyone was white. And then, and even here, you know, they're talking about Audre Lorde's house. There was like one black woman presenting on her. There's one black man in the audience, just one. And, I, and he got up to speak because you can give public testimony in favor or against these landmark, uh, these proposed landmark sites. Right. And this guy gets up there and I'm thinking, you know, probably just a, a wrong assumption. I was like thinking he's going to like support the house. But he was actually the owner of the house. Hmm. And he was so fascinating because he wasn't against the landmarking, but he took issue with the fact that the LPC had told him that he had to remove this deck that he had built on the back of it. Because, you know, if something is landmark, you can't change yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And he had this whole eloquent thing. He's like, look, all the houses on my street have that deck. It looked like the deck was there and she had probably removed it because there's a window that looks like it used to be a door. So in my mind, I was actually restoring the house. And, like, I'm the one responsible for painting it. That's why it looks so good. And I was like... This is this is the stuff that Audre Lorde was fascinating, like this intersectionality that that a lot of people in her LGBT community were not recognizing. Like, look, my problems as a black lesbian are different than your problems as a white lesbian, right? So all these people like that were supporting the house were white, and then here you have the guy who's black gets up there. He's like, it's not like you again. He's like, I'm not against it, but I just find it problematic. Like, I'm worried that if you give it this extra status, then I'm really going to be fucked because like you're asking me to pay to remove this deck and I already invested in building the deck, right? So anyway, to get back to the poem, because the poem was open so long, I realized as I'm hearing this, I was like, this is fucking dynamite. This is going to go into the poem. This is how I'm going to close the poem because all this stuff is related to these problems about race that I've been talking about with my department and it's a way to bring Audre Lorde back into the poem because she is quoted at the beginning of the other poem I was talking about, about race, about uh, Korean American male sexuality. So, I love long poems for that reason because it feels more organic because, like, this thing unfolds over time. And it just ends up being a much, I think, truer portrait not only of my, like, personhood but of reality. So anyone that just, like, writes one-page poem, I feel like those are the people that like basketball (laughs) more than baseball. (laughs) Like, you don't get, like, all of reality, like, unfolding the way you will in, like, a baseball game because baseball games are much more, like, narrative. Well, they're outside also, which is also... uh, Yeah. I I think we... I like the. I like that. Yeah, I know we got to wrap it up. We're getting. Yeah. I got to leave it. You got to run. I got to run. I'm good. But I do I like. You, uh, I know you have to leave. Yeah. Um, no, but I do like how you. It takes. Uh, you work it out over, weeks and months because you you you're living and experiencing life and yeah. at the same time. And you're so changing. then you're then you're bringing those elements into it. It's not like you're sitting down and you're like, okay, today I'm gonna write a poem yeah. and I'm gonna finish it. Yeah. Which there's nothing wrong with that exactly. either. You nothing know, wrong but. With that. But it's just not as good. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. But yeah, I totally agree because it's just it's you know because it's almost like you 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 decide to, the way I look at it. It's almost like a, I've heard Seinfeld say something about comedy. Like you are in a way living. You're starting a poem and then you're like living your life right to bring it into your work. Yeah, I love and I love That's that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. You know? That's why I love long poems. So my last book has this uh, an uber long poem. It's almost like a book itself. It's like a 50-page poem. And that one is more like a diary. Uh, these are more like essays. But I would sort of like talk about that as I wrote that poem. It's great also because you can be really self-conscious about the writing process. Like how you're changing. You're literally changing as mm-hmm. the poem is going on. So by the time you get to the end of the poem, you're a totally different person, right? And that's really true for any poem. But it's... It's less true if you're writing it all in one sitting. So, like, poets that love to write poems all in one sitting, like, I think it's fine if that's, if that's your process and, like, that's how you work. But I just feel like you're, the poem is not capturing 
life itself in the same way, right? So um, I love that that way that some people describe like Jackson Pollock's paintings, like action painting. Mm-hmm. Th- I think like he probably I think he didn't like that actually. I can't remember, but I've always liked that term, <laughs> and not so much because like I want to like you know like, my poems are like splattering paint on the floor, but like it's something like that where you're actually kind of like inside the poem more, and it's happening over time in a way that's that that ends up I think containing more of the energy of real life mm-hmm. and the what your life is actually like because the problems with a lot of poems is like they end up seeming too fabricated right like or the what i think of is like poetic or capital too, p uh, curated or something yeah, yeah. like i had a, a poetry student write me a letter once like she had gotten an assignment from a teacher of hers to like find a contemporary poet they liked and write a letter to that poet. it's actually a great assignment i should steal that assignment. and she said something really striking in her like she just read some of my poems online i think and she's like, what I like about your poems is like, I just feel like a lot of poets, like, even when they seem like they're, like it's a confessional poem or something, like they're writing about something really dark or terrible that happened, it just seems like, I can't remember the term she used, but it just seems like it's like coded, right? Like they're trying to make it sound beautiful. And she's like, and you don't do that. <laughs> it's almost like it could be an insult, but like she definitely, she didn't mean it that way. She's right. like, you don't try to like sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. You don't try to make it seem like this terrible thing that happened is beautiful. You just say it like it is. Like this is how it actually is. And it's much more painful. And I was like, damn straight. You totally got it. <laughs> but I think that only happens if you can, I don't think you can do that in a short lyric poem, right? Like I know that's not my strength. You can only do that if you have this really long open form where you register things almost in like a mundane way. And it you just feel the sort of impact of like what daily life actually feels like and what it actually feels like to live. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I hate about a lot of poetry <laughs> is that when it just seems like falsified, right? It's like they're trying to give you something that like seems beautiful, even if they're writing like, like, a, like about a trauma. Like a card or something, yeah. Well, it's not, it doesn't have to be that bad. I mean, that's well, really but bad. in a way, but yeah. it's like... But yeah, yeah it's like a professional poet. We're going to capsulize this moment yeah. and... Right. To you. Here's this beautiful rendering of thing, and here's the insight I'm giving into no, I, uh, what happened. Kind of relating it to tango in a little bit, and uh, and I guess we'll, we would do, we will wrap it up shortly. <laughs> I do want you to mention that your book titles too. But okay. one night, uh, one night a long time ago, I was at La Bruta, and I was having like a bad day. Maybe I was going through a breakup or something. I don't know. A lot of trauma with my one of my old relationships, and I remember going there because they didn't really. I'm sure have, none of them are your listeners right now. No, no, they don't have any pubs really. They just, it's like. They have like weird like techno-y bars and then they have milongas. Like there's no uh-huh. like sports bars like we have here, although they're sort of coming around, I think. Yeah. Anyway, I'm like, well, I still want to go out tonight. I still want to have a drink and listen to some music. So I go to the milonga, I'm sitting at the bar next to Horacio. He's DJing. And he's, I, he says like, are you going to dance? Are you dancing tonight or something? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling like right. I'm at my best. Right. And he says, that's exactly why we dance. <laughs> Yeah, and I true. and then I, a woman who I've always wanted to dance with, who never seemed interested, like happened to be standing there, and we cabaseoed and we danced, and it was yeah. fucking awesome. Yeah, and I was just—it nice. was like a really honest t- tango. It was the first ah, time it felt really honest. Like I wasn't trying cool. to impress. I wasn't. I was like, tonight sucks. My life sucks. <laughs> Everything sucks. Right. I'm not saying you have to do that to be good. It's right, just, right. Just relating to your point about. Yeah. I think a lot of people when they when they write poetry when they make art when they dance tango they're always trying to do it's almost like they forgot why they're doing it in the first place yeah it's so true it's yeah, like they're, they're, they're stereotyping their their own honest moment or, or like yeah. we do this because we're trying to express something but then we get wrapped up in all the all the bullshit yeah and then it's like is that even a poem 
You know, it's true. You you used a cuss word. Is that you allowed to do that in oh poetry? Oh my god, those people whatever. I can't stand. Yeah, no, I think the more I think about it, like honesty, I've never thought of like honesty as a necessarily like great virtue. <laughs> but I guess it's occurring to me now that like within my art, I actually maybe that's what I value the most. Uh, but I've never thought of it that way, and I'm I'm realizing now that maybe that's that's what it is because I've always. I don't know why, but even when I was younger, I always hated this idea of like confessional poetry because I'm like, what are you confessing? <laughs> but I think the thing that bothered me about it is like the the poets that were writing those kinds of poems, like it just seemed it wasn't confessional. No, I think it was more like self pity. Well, it was like it just seemed melodramatic. Yeah. it's just like, oh my god, this horrible thing happened to me, and I have to tell you about it. And there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> because I mean, like I do that a lot in my poems too. But like I wasn't doing it in that way like mm-hmm. usually when something terrible happened to me and i write about it i would be like making fun of myself like i would be mocking myself <laughs> for this thing that had happened and to me that was a i don't know a truer way of like accessing the pain because like when i went through it myself like like i would feel terrible and feel sorry for myself but i would also be mocking myself like it was much more layered than that it wasn't just like oh poor me i'm a victim it's also like jesus what did you do to yourself like you're such an idiot, <laughs> you, idiot. <laughs> you know and i would also have strength i'm like you got to get yourself out of this like mm-hmm. how are you going to get out of this uh and all that is like intertwined right and it's not like you're just alone then you're also still going out in the world and having experiences so you know when i when i do read poems that don't feel like that to me or just other books i'm just like where's the life in this you know it's not this is not how actual reality feels and moves to me you know like it and that could be true for anything it could be true for tango like and i never thought of a dance as being honest but that's great that's a great way to think of it you know i think that's all right we got we definitely yeah, i'm gonna be late but i wanted to say shit i think that might be what made whitman so great yeah it is because like he the changed reasons. the he changed the game in that sense. Like, yeah, he really spoke honestly. Well, and he opened. And I think again, one of the things that he allowed him to do that is he he invented a form that was longer and more open. Mm-hmm. I mean, he invented this hugely expansive free verse form that allowed him to, I think, speak in a truer way. Like he just would almost in a boring way, just like bring reality in. Like what would have known his as his catalogs, he would just like bring people into his poems, like. And it wouldn't be, like, poetic. He'd just be like, this is what the, the driver of the buses do. Not the bus, but the, the driver. Did they have buses back then? Probably not. Like, this is what, like, the horse the horse rider is doing. This is so, it sounds so bad, because I'm, I'm totally blanking on, like, his college. carriage. Uh, yeah, like, oh, yeah, like, the driver of the carriage. Yeah, or, like, yeah. this is what the policeman is doing, and this is, this is what the farmer is doing, mm-hmm. and this is what the prostitute is doing. And he would bring in all different people from all different walks of life, and he wouldn't try to poeticize them. I mean, he would have beautiful images and phrases, but he would just say them in a much more natural, almost mundane way. But that was the poetry, right? Like, he wasn't trying to write poetry, capital P. And he could do that. Like, you see these moments or gestures which are much more lyrical. But he was also interested in this sort of, like, flat plane, right? So, like, the heights and also the, the lows. Uh, and then I think he did that because that, to him, seemed like what life was actually like. Especially America at the time, which was just, like, bursting at the seams in mm-hmm. the, you know, the mid-19th century. It's like, how do you capture that reality, especially in Brooklyn, Right. Um, like a sonnet doesn't seem commensurate to that experience, you know. I mean, still today, like people that write sonnets, I'm like, yeah, they're great, but it's just like, how does that capture what life is? Like, you have to write like a series of sonnets. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to write like hundreds to really start to capture what a life feels like, you know. So, what are the you have three books out? 
Yeah. What are they? So the last, the most recent one came out. When did that come out, actually? 2000, did that come out last year? 2018? Yeah, 2018. That one is called More Than Mere Light. It's published by Prelude Books. The one before that, the second book, is called America's Favorite Palm. That came out in 2014. My first book is called Man on Extremely Small Island. So the first two books are actually in the process of changing publishers, which is really cool. So the first, the former press was called CNR Press, but my friend Joe Pan, who you know, who runs Brooklyn Arts Press, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Arts, did I say Brooklyn Arts Pants? That'd be great. Brooklyn Arts Press, uh, he has uh, got the rights from CNR to republish them under his imprint, which would be great because I love uh, Brooklyn Arts Press. So those will be hopefully coming out next year, the reprints. Hmm. Uh, and what's great because you know what I get to do? I get to make li- some little edits. <laughs> <laughs> There's some mistakes actually in the first book. They're very tiny, but and uh, I can like actually like edit a couple of things I wouldn't wanting to edit since they were published. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so buy those if buy you those want. Buy those books. Go to the Yop, second Monday, 7 o'clock. Brooklynpoets.org. Check that out. That's mm-hmm. where you can find out all the info about Brooklyn Poets. And maybe you'll see Jason at a Milonga near you soon. Yeah, I need to return to tango. All right, man. Thank you. All right. Let's thanks for having me. Tonight. Next time we do this, we'll talk more sports. Yeah. I'm sure the, the We can listeners. do an emergency pod on the state we of tri baseball. We should have our own sports podcast. That's what Bill Simmons does if something important happens. <laughs> emergency podcast at midnight. I know, I remember. During the playoffs, it was uh-huh. great. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. That was Jason Koo. You can check him out at jasonyku.com. He's got a few books out, as he has mentioned. If you'd like to see him in the flesh... Go on the second Monday to 61 Local, which is on Bergen Street, and check out the uh, writing workshops and the open mic. Uh, very interesting that I didn't know he founded Brooklyn Yops, although I'd been there several times, and he does run it, so huh, that should make sense. But I don't know. I don't ask a lot of questions unless I have somebody on the show. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see everybody very soon in the tango or non-tango world. Go Indians. Uh, NFL starts on Sunday, 1 p.m. The Browns play the Tennessee Titans. You bet your ass I'll be at Brother Jimmy's for that game. Um, Hungover from Malaleche, but I will make it. All right, everybody, have a great week, weekend. Enjoy your lives. Do your most to... uh, Treat yourselves well. All right. Bye.